Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Eat Sleep Work Repeat, it's a podcast about workplace culture, psychology and life. I'm Bruce Taisley. Hello, thank you for for joining me again. Over the course of this series of episodes, I've tried to focus on really timely issues and, and this one's very much in keeping with that. It's impossible to move from and escape from discussions of AI right now. At the start of this year, I wrote a newsletter or at the end of last year, actually, I wrote a newsletter that said we should expect our jobs to change this year with the implications of of machine learning and AI. And three months into the year, I think that's looking like a pretty safe prediction. I'm always struck by how certain industries embrace new technologies. If you ever go into a toy shop, or especially a novelty shop um, selling novelty toys, you can often find yourself surprised by their use of new technology, gimmicky, faddy technologies that are just incorporating brand new things. Anyone who's looked at the latest drones might be surprised by how cutting edge they strive to be. I was reading about selfie drones a few weeks ago, drones whose job it is to capture a a gorgeous looking photograph of you. And the idea of the use of technology by industries like that is always humbling, I think, because it reminds us how slow that we can be to adapt to new changing technologies ourselves. Are we thinking about how our jobs could be enhanced by things that are changing around us? With the advent of chat GPT or AI tools like Midjourney and Dali, we've been presented with huge challenges and huge opportunities. And the question is really thrown to us. Are we willing to dedicate some of our time to explore what these tools could mean for us and Or are we, I guess, caught up in that curse of being busy where we tell ourselves, well, it doesn't affect me just yet. For months, all of my newsletter and podcast art has been AI. And both of these endeavours, they're both passion projects. They don't make any money. So hiring an artist was never an option. Now, each week I'm trying to experiment and just see what I can do. And look, I've been... Um, so thrilled making art in the style of the Muppets or Tintin or asking it to create a watercolour that looks like the little prince. It's been mind-blowing for me. And and while simultaneously I recognise that there are challenges here for the artist whose work feeds the model, for the the inability to directly ascribe um, the creativity that's, that's fed it, I think you can't help but be thrilled by what it's done. My partner's from Lebanon and and the Tintin-style renderings of Beirut I was playing with last week just made us both so happy to look at. Um, So, you know, today's discussion, I think, should land you right in a sweet spot of thinking about the implications of AI for your own job by taking a step back and asking yourself first why you should connect with AI and how you could connect with it. Because today's guest is Professor Kostos Andropoulos, and he explains, I think, why thinking about curiosity is the engine for the the first stage here. Quite often, if we're asked to be more creative and to think about being more creative, it seems too big a challenge. It seems, you know, a, a huge first step. Whereas if someone says to you, bring a degree of, of curiosity to your job, it's immediately more accessible. There was a wonderful piece of work, I've linked to it in the show notes, about five years ago by uh, a re- researcher, a professor called Frances- Francesco Gino from Harvard Business School. And she conducted a piece of work. She looked at 3,000 employees from a, a wide range of industries. And firstly, she found the dispiriting thing that only a quarter of them, 24% of them, reported feeling curious in their jobs on a regular basis. 
Most of them said that they felt there were barriers to being curious. But the really interesting thing was, in a study of employees, they found that natural curiosity was associated with better job performance as evaluated by their bosses. The more curious a worker was, the better a boss thought they were doing their job. And really interestingly, back to her survey, she found that 92% of all of us in our jobs credited curious people with bringing new ideas into the team and actually being a catalyst for making the job more rewarding. It's like this really interesting thing, creativity in our jobs feels like this thing that maybe we ascribe to certain responsibilities we say it's not us it's down to that that person with strange glasses who sits in the corner but actually when it comes down to doing our jobs better it's curiosity that's the access point to that creativity and often it can be the access point to us uh, bringing more inventiveness to our own jobs so i think this is a really timely discussion the conversation it runs long it goes into a whole consideration first of why curiosity matters and then goes into the applications of that with these new tools that were being gifted I found it a really fascinating discussion. Um, just to give him a proper introduction, Kostas Andriopoulos is a professor of management and is the associate dean for entrepreneurship at Bayes Business School. I'm delighted, actually, that Bayes Business School uh, have just made me an honorary visiting professor. So um, I'm, I'm so thrilled to be able to work more closely with such a, a brilliant thinker as as Professor Andriopoulos, and uh, I'm sure you're going to enjoy this. The show notes today give you a whole load of links, not only to um, to Costas's book, but also to other things that you might want to pursue if you're following this up. I think you'll really enjoy this one. This is how curiosity and creativity are going to help us connect with these incredible AI tools. Let's go. Firstly, it's lovely to be here in person with uh, doing an interview in person. I wonder if you could kick us off by introducing yourself and and explaining what you do. Okay, of course. Uh, thank you very much for having me. It's a real pleasure and an honor uh, to having this conversation with you. I'm uh, Kostas Andriopoulos. I'm a professor of innovation and entrepreneurship at uh, Bayes Business School, City University of London. And this means that uh, I'm researching um companies which are entrepreneurial um, in different parts of the world. I have done this. I'm also teaching uh, a course which is about how to start your own business, which is called New Virtual Creation. And I'm also doing executive education, as we uh, can imagine, with uh, small, medium, uh, as well as large organizations who would like to dig deeper in terms of how they can become more innovative. My specialization is not incremental innovation, it's uh, radical innovation or breakthrough innovation. So I'm focusing on uh, products, on teams, on organizations that would like to disrupt how things are done in their industry. So I'm not focusing so much on products and services that they have already, for instance, uh, launched and how they can make them lighter, um, smaller, with more storage, and more, more about how to, for instance, um, think, design, develop, and launch um, an interesting groundbreaking product that consumers will go wow about or the media would like to learn more about. Right. And so you've just written this book on curiosity. Is that because you see that as a routine? Is I, I saw a, a really interesting thing the other day that um, uh, with reference to curiosity, which was I saw the music producer Rick Rubens was talking about his process. And obviously he's worked with some of the biggest artists in the world. And, and he talked about how the artists he loves working with have just got this constant sense of curiosity. They're, they're interested. So he gave one example where, yeah. where the musician Neil Young was out on walks during the COVID era and found himself whistling these tunes. And he, and he started recording them because he didn't recognise the tunes. And uh, and actually he realised was, these were sort of self-compositions of his subconscious. And so he recorded them and he turned them into an album. And the whole thing that was... The basis of that story was that Rick Rubin said that, look, you know, this is the person who has allowed curiosity to take him down a path. Is that the reason why you've got a fascination, fascination with it? The, the things that I started um, researching when I was doing my PhD was about creativity and how creativity can be enhanced in the workplace. So I was very curious about this. And what I discovered was, um, first of all, I have to explain something. As an academic, I'm a qualitative researcher, which means that I'm spending a lot of time on the field. So um, 
uh, I'm becoming one employee of a company that I'm researching, which means that uh, I will interview a lot of people, I will observe meetings, I will observe how they work, so I will spend some time with them. So I've done case studies that we call them in academic terms uh, in companies in London, in Scotland, in Silicon Valley, in uh, New York. So what you notice is that creativity is something that comes after being curious. So we are cur curiosity to me comes before creativity. So I'm curious about something, I'm open-minded, I may discover something interesting that I can use in terms of coming up with an idea, generating an idea. And so to me, curiosity and creativity are very interlinked. So the people who are started talking, observing, researching were very curious about their industry, but they were also very curious about other things. So what we have to realize is that a lot of companies push their employees to focus on their industry, push their employees to be curious about, for instance, their competitor products. But in reality, we have to move beyond our industry if we want to generate some interesting ideas. So a lot of these people that I've studied, for instance, they were curious about theater. They were curious because they were designing products, physical products, three-dimensional products. So they were interesting about architecture. They were interesting about music. So their curiosity is actually linked to the creative ideas that they, are, that they were coming up with. So it's very closely linked. Sometimes we have to um, discover uh, some new things, some new paths. Sometimes we have to recognize. So I love what you're saying about discovery, but sometimes it's a um, some people are coming to us and they are saying, have you uh, heard that um, tune or have you seen that movie? And then we're saying, or have you heard of that technology? And then it's about us not discovering so much, but about recognizing what this movie, what this tune, what this, uh, for instance, technology can do in terms of our ideas. And so this, is this a muscle that you can you can practice and, and get used to? The, the re thing that really strikes me about what you say there is I remember chatting to um, the whole ad industry has always been yes. created with pairs, partners, and the, the whole ad industry effectively because I, I chatted to an, a madman, you know, a long veteran of advertising, and he said um, the secret in advertising creativity is not coming up with the idea, it's spotting that that's the good one. You'll be sitting with someone, they'll come up with 30 ideas, and actually you say, oh, it's this one there that you, you is the good one. And so, firstly, I, I'm interested in the idea of... of what the combinations of curiosity are, because it sounds like having a partner in crime is, is a helpful one there. Absolutely. But, but what other patterns you've, you've witnessed in hand to, um, to fine-tune this muscle? First of all, it's, uh, you're absolutely right. It's a muscle that we all have, and we used to exercise when we were um, babies, toddlers, kids. And it's interesting, when I started interviewing all these people uh, in the book, the first reaction that uh, they have when we start talking about curiosity, first, first of all, you see in their facial expressions, they are smiling. And they are not smiling so much about the conversation that we are having because we haven't started the conversation yet, but they are smiling because they are always thinking about the past and the moments that they were very curious. And it takes them back. When I'm saying back, when they were, for instance, playing with things, discovering things in their house or then in the school. So it, it's a muscle that we can um, exercise. The problem is that... Um, education teaches uh, people, students, uh, when they are younger, that they have to um, become very good in answering rather than uh, asking. So if you look at a lot of studies, they are saying that the average teacher will ask around 300 questions per day, which means that students get uh, conditioned to answer rather than getting, uh, for instance, encouraged to ask. So it is a muscle that we can exercise. And of course, it's better to have to be surrounded by people who are equally curious. So if you're surrounded by people who are equally curious, then you will get into the mode. So you will get into the zone of asking questions. So I think through education, and then they reach the university and they end up having been in a class surrounded by 300 students, especially in the undergraduate programs, where, for instance, what happens is that uh, you have a lecturer um, delivering the, uh, the, the, the module or the course, and then what you have is um, people listening. So we are conditioned to listen rather than raising a hand, uh, hand and asking the question. So it's very difficult to do it on your own. It's easier if you have other people you know, doing it uh, with you. Because what we have to realize, and this is something that I, I didn't cover so much in the book, but there is an element of misbehaving when somebody is curious, right? Because 
there is an element of asking some questions um, coming across as um, nosy about you know what is happening in their lives, sometimes asking inappropriate questions. So there is this kind of thing. And to me, sometimes this may lead to a lot of creative uh, ideas, right? So advertising world or the adver a lot of advertising campaigns are based on uh, using taboos. Uh, for instance, um, as uh, a central part of um, their campaigns. So there is something to me which is unruly that is closely linked to curiosity. There is something with, to me which is misbehaving or uh, we should encourage misbehaving in terms of curiosity. And to me, because I teach and, uh, people who potentially at one point in their lives would like to become entrepreneurs, the first trait that I look is whether they will misbehave in the class or whether they will follow all the rules. So sometimes, I hope that my students didn't, they don't hear what I'm going to say, but sometimes what I do is I put a lot of structures, I put a lot of rules, and sometimes the rules that I'm putting, or the, the structure that I'm putting is artificial. At one point, I want somebody to raise their hand and say, this is enough, can we do this differently? So in a way, I'm going, I, I like to push them. So if you don't get the pushback, to me, this is not a very good sign. So you have to actually push them further, push them further, until they push back. And this is where it starts getting interesting. Give us an example. What sort of unnecessary rules do you impose just to text them? Uh, for instance, I give them templates. And I say, you have to focus, uh, you have to follow this template. And then they are asking me, I said, yes, it makes sense to follow this template because sometimes investors, for, um, they would like to compare and contrast pitches uh, and business plans um, by following a particular structure. But then, I don't have a lot of pushback saying, is this the right sequence of, for instance, slides? Can I change the sequence of the slides? Can I change, for instance, what I cover? So, they, they uh, but sometimes you get that. And this is what I love, right? Because when you get students saying, uh, can I change? I say, of course you can change. I mean, you are the owner of this. What I'm giving you is just one way of doing things. Right. So this is when it starts getting a, a very interesting for me. But you don't want people to, 100% follow what you tell them, right? You want people to get, you know, a glimpse or to get something from what you're telling them and make it their own. So this is where education starts getting very interesting because then when you go to the class, it's a very interactive, right? So it's a two-way communication. So you are uh, facilitating, you're leading, you're sharing the information, but on the other hand, you have to be curious about what other people feel about this. So I'm always telling them, I don't have all the answers or I don't have one answer. What I have is I'm going to show you different ways of dealing with something and then you will figure out what works for you in the, um, in the context and the situation that you feel this thing will work for you. So we're trying in a way to talk about equifinality. Equifinality means that we may have different paths reaching the same destination. So I'm against people who are quite prescriptive. So we are saying this is the only way. And to me this intrigues them. This makes them curious. So when you're saying this is the only way, then people start resisting. People become curious. People start uh, pushing back. So this is where we, we have a lot of interesting conversations and we find new paths in terms of exploring what um, the subject or the topic of that particular lecture is about. So, so curiosity is an engine of creativity and you're trying to sort of foster it and develop it. I saw some research that said there's a recognition of this, that these, you know, when colleagues are asked who are the most creative colleagues in their workplace, they say it's the colleagues who've got curiosity. Yeah. But simultaneously, they say that they feel all the scope for questioning and curiosity is squeezed out of their job. Yeah. And so I just want to sort of think about the specific limitations on it. And... I just wonder, some of the, the best examples you give are where people have been on a flight of curiosity, where they kind of feel like they've put their day job on pause. They've they've been tasked with doing something. And, you know, those rigours of 15 hours a week of meetings or the, the slack that they need to stay appraised of, all of those things are sort of paused and they're able to abandon themselves into it. For most of us in our regular day-to-day -day job, there's limitations on that. And so I just wonder, the, the pillars of work, which are, I guess, communication and meetings, and they're, to some extent, they're the same, but pillars of... How damaging is uh, email and Slack and oh. Teams and how damaging is meetings when it comes to sort of trying to explore this curiosity? Uh, you're absolutely right. And I think as ancient Greeks were saying, everything in moderation. 
So I think that we are doing this excessively. When I'm saying excessively, it means that I can say, you know, throughout the week that there are loads of meetings, for instance. Sometimes these meetings are needed because when we're talking about something novel, something that we haven't most probably discussed in the past, then face-to-face interaction is helpful. And this can get extremely more valuable when we're talking about something which is new and complex. So a lot of studies have shown that if you're working on something which is new and complex, you have to see each other, you have to meet. So this is great. This is something that you know, we, we should um, actually strive uh, towards. And these are the meetings where people come curious or become curious about because you're talking about the future. A lot of the meetings, though, are not about this. It's more about um, discussing. It's more about um, um, finding what further information we need to collect. So some meetings uh, don't have a clear agenda. Some meetings are um, inviting people who shouldn't be there because they're not relevant. So basically, there is a mismanaging of people's time. If we would like to be happy and engaged and present, we have to encourage people to be, to be curious. The moment that you are asking a question, you are exposing yourself. The moment that you are asking a question, you are saying to everybody else, I'm vulnerable, because it shows that you don't know something. There are some cultures, there are some societies which reward people who are doing this. There are some cultures in terms of organizations, some societies, who actually punish those. So it depends on the culture that you have, and it depends on the society that you have. But if we would like to have a society that will focus on solving the biggest problems that we have, then we have to put curiosity and questioning back to the agenda. So I have been in this industry for a while, so I'm not, uh, as you can say, spring chicken. And the interesting thing about this is I'm running meetings with colleagues. The moment that these meetings are statements, people are some, not so much engaged. Uh, they come to the meetings because they have to come, etc., etc. So it's like, mainly, to put it you know, bluntly, it's like a drug, right? So people have to be there. But once in a while, I, I do a couple of tricks. So I convert these statements into questions. So how many students did apply for this program? What was our budget about this? You know, what was the most um, well-received lecture? The moment that you convert an agenda into questions, everybody arrives and everybody comes with some guesses. So, and everybody's engaged and everybody's present. So they forget about phones, they forget about Slack, they forget about everything else. So the moment that you start learning something from a statement, and let me be honest here, because I have done it, I'm sure other people have done it in the past, from, you know, cliche statements to questions, people become present. And people are there. So the point that you are asking or the, the point that you are raising, it is true. And sometimes we have to realize, to acknowledge that this is not the right way. The right way is to get people more inquisitive about what they do. Mm -hmm. So the fact that I'm an academic, it means that, first of all, I think this is a great job because I can be curious about the things that, uh, that I'm actually passionate about. But I don't think that our profession is limited. I think a lot of entrepreneurs, especially the entrepreneurs that I interviewed for the book or I have done um, research with, they're extremely passionate and, they're, and they are curious about you know, their product, about competitors, about the future, about customers' needs. So they are always curious. And this is something that if you reflect on, it cascades down level. So then you see their teams being uh, curious. So there is this element. So to me, curiosity is also good business. It's very good for the, um, for, the, um, for the bottom line. But let me actually f um, finish my uh, sentence by going back. But everything in moderation. You cannot be curious forever. At one point, you have to launch, right? So you have to be curious. You have to diverge. You have to look at different solutions, different industries, et cetera, et cetera. But at one point, you need to find an answer. Curiosity is about finding an answer. So cultures that are about or are allowing you know, their employees to be curious and then finding solutions are the ones which are going to survive and thrive in the future. I'm really struck by um, one of the things that has come along recently, um, because the, the way you describe curiosity is it's sort of this often 
lonely process of reading, exploring, allowing your mind to wander. And you tell a story of a woman who works at the Museum of London. She was sort of spending, it seems like, um, fruitless days of looking through stuff. And then eventually she stumbled upon something that was helpful to her. And so it's that serendipity of your curiosity finding something good. And what we seem to have been gifted in the last two or three months is this ability to cut that process shorter and the arrival of AI tools, the arrival of the the likes of chat GPT. And I I think we're only just seeing the start of it. The the people who are playing around with the the latest version of of OpenAI's tool are, are showing even more stuff. Could AI be the engine for much better use of creativity in the future? How do you see AI and these tools helping to enhance or maybe change the process of curiosity and creativity? That's a great question. It's very topical. And this is something that uh, has been bothering me for some time. So I started playing with the chat uh, GPT in December. So some time ago. So when it came out and, you know, and people were talking about this, I said, okay, what does it do? Right? So I was very curious about this. And what I realized is that it has huge capabilities, right? So the, um, there are no limits with this. So I don't see this as... What sort of things were you asking it? First of all, <laughs> um, ask, the first thing I think that I asked was, what does it know about me? <laughs> because I said, I, I was, at that point I was thinking a lot of people will be using it, so a lot of people will be uh, looking for information. So I said, what do, you, what do you know about, for instance, our school, base, business school? But because it stops in 2021, there is nothing right. about yeah, that's it. Right. So, um, which for me was a limitation, right? So it's not live, as Google or other search. Although the new version is live. It's live, so, yeah. yes. Yeah. So at that point it wasn't. So I've tried to figure out, so let's assume that I have somebody who is interested in, in what we do, is interested in what I do, will define information about what we do or what I do. Because I was thinking a lot of people may um, reduce the time that they spend using Google and they may increase the time that they spend using, for instance, those kind of tools. And in my hypothesis, I, I started believing that I was right. You know, talking to friends, a lot of people were using this, right? Because it's, uh, <laughs> it, it gives you a lot of interesting answers. It makes you think about the answers, whether they are right or wrong. Again, it's about engaging, right? So the, the interesting thing was that it was giving a lot of information, but some of the information was not accurate. Mm. Uh, some of the information was accurate. So I have to actually correct it. I have to say, this is true, this is not true. And of course, this is the beginning, this is where we are at the moment. Will it get better? Absolutely. I don't say this, um, for instance, replacing, but I say this as being a fantastic ally, a fantastic partner in crime, as you were saying earlier, in terms of curiosity and creativity. Because it can give you a lot of information very quickly. And you can adjust what you are asking, what you're looking for very quickly. So in a way, instead of us going to different sites, looking for different things, it can get all this information very quickly. So on these things, I find this extremely helpful. But from my research and curiosity and talking to all these people, what I realized is that we can get a lot of information by being on the ground, which means that by talking to people. There are a lot of people who have a lot of knowledge and if you actually tap on them, they can share a lot of this knowledge very quickly. So to me, there is like, not a replacement, but having interactions with somebody, being on the road, you know, talking to people, to me is an analog version of uh, chat uh, GPT, right? So there are loads, loads of people who have been doing something for a long period of time and they hold so much knowledge. So for us, if we would like to be a little bit different, because creativity is about novelty and usefulness. So if you look at definitions, they're saying creativity is something which is novel and useful to somebody. So we have to see what will be beyond chat GPT. Mm. Because if there are four, five, 10, 100 people going there and asking the same thing, and the machine comes with the same result or similar results, then what will be the difference? So to me, the difference will come if you move beyond. So if we stay, this is what, what, this is what is happening with other, um, for instance, search engines. You are saying, but this is the results that everybody else will get, right? So how can I actually be more competitive, different, better than everybody else? So I need to add something. So that's something for me is talking to people, is um, observing. And I think the machine cannot talk at the moment, cannot observe. So a lot of times it's 
about observing. So, for instance, I'm, I have to say that I turned 50 in January and I'm still observing people when I walk, while I walk or while I'm in the tube, right? I, I'm not so much seduced by my smartphone. So by observing, then you see what people read. You see, for instance, what kind of uh, things they're wearing, what kind of gadgets they have. So whether they are actually walking fast or whether they are enjoying. So there are a lot of images that the algorithm that we all have in our head is uh, enriched by looking all those kind of things. So there has to be something that complements. To me, the future is um, complementing what the machine tells us with our own experiences. And that's the first thing. The second thing, this is what I was saying earlier, and I will go back to this. Um, people who are curious at points move beyond what is the norm or what is expected because they would like to figure out the truth. They would like to see how they can do things differently. So I was cheeky when I was using chat uh, GPT. So I asked, <laughs> I, I, I asked them to actually uh, a couple of things which were inappropriate. A couple of things which uh, thing that they were not expecting. And there was no response. Okay. So the, the, the machine was saying, you know, the, the chat CPD was saying, I am, I'm not trained to do this or I cannot do this. And I think human beings still can do this. So, for instance, I was talking about taboos earlier. I was talking about things that people don't want to talk about. People do talk about those kind of things. And sometimes by talking about those kind of things, they normalize, then you can get very creative about this. So at the moment, chat CPD or whatever is going to come next um, may not tap on that um, group, let's say, of uh, interesting things that as human beings we do. Okay, interesting. So, so I guess what you're saying is um, it can be an assistance to the process, but if curiosity ultimately is about finding meandering into the unexpected, so surprising ourselves with something that's original and novel, then by the very nature of AI, they're more likely to go into familiar paths rather than unfamiliar ones. Correct. And I think a lot of people who have done uh, polar exploration, because I have some polar explorers, for instance, or storm chases like Joe Kurunis, Ben Saunders, in terms of polar explorers, or Felicity Aston, they have to get a lot of information online before they move to those hostile, very difficult environments. But then what all of them told me was that whatever I could get in terms of the online um, knowledge, it was great. But when we went there, we have to talk to the locals because the locals know these areas better than we do. So for instance, in terms of uh, George Kurunis' um, case, that he goes to volcanoes, he goes to a lot of different places. So the locals have a lot of knowledge that is not captured digitally. So this is something else that uh, we care about. And the other thing is that all of us experience things differently. Um, I don't think that the machine at the moment can collect all these experiences and put them into an algorithm that can give us, you know, what will be like, you know, I don't know, crossing uh, the, the Arctic or the Antarctic on foot and coming back. Or um, getting exposed to all these different challenges and problems that somebody may face uh, when they are trying to take the best um, picture inside a volcano. So there are a lot of the things that the human mind can think and the human imagination can, can think or visualize that they want to move to the path that hasn't been taken in the past. So there are some formal paths that maybe the machine can replicate, but there are some other paths that they are still up to human imagination. Will it happen at one point? I'm sure. Will it happen quicker than we think? I'm sure. But again, I, I always believe that this is a collaboration between um, what the machine can do and uh, uh, what we can do. It's really interesting because I guess what you you say throughout is that you know you should have some purpose to your curiosity and you should have something that you're trying to accomplish. And at the very least, if someone's sitting there thinking, okay, well, I don't know what I should set about having my curiosity about, having your curiosity about the AI, the AI yeah. and the limitations of it might be like an interesting exploration. I was really struck with um, one of the people who's been experimenting with the new version of the AI. And he's been saying, I'm just putting these things in. And I'm dazzled and I'm learning from each one of them. And so actually it, AI not necessarily being something to enhance your curiosity, but as an area for you to play around with Absolutely. is one example of how these things can be quite fruitful. And it can make you better in asking questions because the response that you get is, is um, instant. Mm. So when you ask, for instance, broad questions, the answer that you get, they're not great, let's be honest. But when you start you know, making your questions more purposeful or more targeted, 
then you are getting a lot of very interesting answers. So, for instance, mm. I taught my a module a couple of weeks ago. So I said, and it's about starting a business. I said um, to chat uh, GPT, if I want to start a new Airbnb, can you tell me how I can uh, develop something which is um, better than Airbnb, right? So it came up with some, some solutions. So it said, for instance, that make it niche rather than everything, right? Or um, uh, use uh, technology like chatbots in terms of improving the experience. So it have five or six things. I mean, uh, everybody can, uh, can replicate what I did and get those results. And then I was thinking, wow, I mean, this is amazing because everything that the uh, chat uh, GPT is telling me is great. I mean, these are the things that an entrepreneur would think. So I will, I will create something which is more focused and then I will try to give them the most amazing service. I will try to vet the best properties so that everybody will come to me rather than Airbnb that now has thousands, let's say, or I don't know, hundreds of thousands or millions, I don't know, of uh, properties, which makes it very hard sometimes to find what you're looking for. But then I thought, in theory, it's great. But as you know, I know, and everybody who has been in this, uh, in entrepreneurship innovation knows is that um, the execution is the most difficult thing. So it's not about formulating something or suggesting something. It's about what is the best way to execute it. So we may have a lot of different ways. Some of them may be successful, ways of executing the same thing, which we have seen in the past and we currently see. Some of entrepreneurs may follow a different path in executing and they may fail. So it's very good in imagining or thinking, but sometimes everything is about executing. So we haven't reached that point yet. So I think it's great in terms of sometimes formulating and it's great of making you better in terms of asking or getting the information that you want. Yeah, it raises such an interesting question of, of the developing skills that we might need to acquire. I saw a website that I'm really enchanted by. You said it's all about the questions you ask. And, and I saw that someone has created this website, which is a marketplace for the questions to give to AI. Right. And so, you know, if anyone's played around with AI art generators, which is slightly different to this, but you'll know that sometimes the art that you can get yourself is a little bit disappointing compared to the things that you've been shown. Right. And people are selling now the prompts that they use to get their incredible dazzling Super thing. interesting. Wow. Yeah. Like just, because I think... What, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. but what you get, it's, the website's called prompt-based, but what you get from that is a notion that actually these are the tools, the emergent tools of business, and operating them with any degree of expertise and skill mm -hmm. is something that we've never even considered before, but is going to be um, an emergent skill. And so what you've said there actually is so fascinating, right? How do I get it to create a version of Airbnb? How to create a, a, a product in, in a market already? Now, by the, what you've described, actually the execution is really important. The the nuance of you understanding what's going to work and what isn't going to work from your own instinctive perspective is really helpful. But as a start point or as a provocation or as a partner in crime, it seems to be we're entering into a really dazzling new era of creativity. Absolutely. And this is real time. It's not a retrospective, so we don't know what will happen. But I see more opportunities rather than challenges. And again, Every time that there is a new innovation coming, people are worrying about their concern, they're afraid. So what I'm always saying, use your curiosity to conquer your fears. So the moment that you exercise your curiosity, you may find things that you really love. You may find things that you may find valuable who can make you better. The moment that you don't use your curiosity and you have a fear, this will become... The, the distance between you and what you're afraid of is going to get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. You will never see value. You will never find something that you like. So, for instance, if somebody says, but I'm afraid of chat uh, GPT, it may take my life, it may take my profession, etc., etc. But the more you spend time with it, you can say, oh, man, that will, can improve my life. That can mm -hmm. make me better. Or I can use this. I can develop this product. Or I can develop these questions. Or I can write uh, about this kind of thing. So the moment that your curiosity brings you closer to this, the more you can see possibilities. So to curiosity to me, and this is something that helps me, helps me a lot in my life, is that curiosity helped me to conquer my fears. Because all of us are afraid of things. But the moment that we are curious about our fears, the more we understand that some of them are not substantiated, firstly. Or sometimes we say, eh, why was I afraid of that? Because I can see a lot of beauty there, or I can see a lot of value there. So to me, curiosity has always been a very interesting ally in the things that we do. Because what we have to realize is that 
especially in, in the era that we are um, actually living in, we are in uncharted territories. We're talking about sad CPT, we're talking about our planet, we're talking about climate change, we're talking about space travel or, uh, or moving to other planets. So there are, there are loads of opportunities. So to me, it's about how we can use this to enhance, to speed up, to um, actually improve things um, in our current lives. What advice would you give to someone then? If someone sets about thinking, you know, for whatever reason they want to foster their creativity and, and, and build their curiosity as a route to get there. We've talked earlier about, you spoke about the ability to have more questions in meetings and, and maybe to sort of create a space where all questions are valued. Are there any other bits of advice that you'd give to people? Exploring these new technologies seems to be something else. What else would you say to sort of get into the habit of being more curious? It's great to put this as part of your values, corporate values, or values in terms of your organizational culture. So there are, for instance, some cultures where curiosity is a very important value to have. And it's actually shown, right? Because I have done research on, on, on culture, and sometimes and because I'm into innovation, you ask, um, first of all, I have to, this is a disclaimer, all companies talk about having innovation as, as their value, right? All. And to me, and um, start, I start getting cynical about it. So again, questioning is helping you. So in the meetings that I had, for instance, about uh, culture, so there was a particular situation, I was uh, doing research in Silicon Valley, and uh, I'm asking the particular uh, person whom, um, who was part of the company that I was researching about the values of that uh, company. Then the guy says to me, do you give me a minute? And I said, yes, I was thinking that he wants to actually think about the values. Then he had the manual, Next to him, he went to the table of contents, then he found the page uh, that, the, um, uh, that the manual was talking about the values, then he went to that page, and then he started reading. I said to him, okay, let's, let's leave it. I didn't want you to tell me what the company thinks the values are. I wanted you to tell me what you feel that the values of the company are. Because there's a difference between what management wants you to believe in what people actually do, right? So to me, I got very intrigued by this. So what are, for instance, the values that the management or the leadership of that particular company was, um, was encouraging their employees to adopt, but against what were the values that um, were in use? So we need to ask these questions all the time. So what is the thing that it's on the manual? What is the thing that is happening in terms of values? So to me, having a questioning attitude is great. And it leads to a lot of interesting uh, solutions. And again, as I was saying earlier, everything in moderation. Because if you come across somebody who asks a lot of questions, then sometimes, not sometime, after some time, people will stop uh, you know, answering you or involving you. And so I have this reputation of, being, of asking a lot of questions. And I still ask a lot of questions. But I'm very interested in finding the answer. So to me, it has to be in the agenda. We have to go to work. We have to. We need to have, for instance, um, um, dinners with friends, where we ask them, um, you know, how how was your day? Uh, what did you learn? What were you curious about? We have to bring this back. So what I noticed is that when I teach, I ask my students to ask a lot of questions, right? So it's about it's very interactive, and actually, this is the most. Um, challenging way of uh, teaching because you never know what they will say, you never know what they will ask, right? So this is again is what I refer to as the propaganda style of teaching, which means that you go with the preset, uh, for instance, slides, you, you, you deliver them and then you're gone. So what happens there is that anything can go. But to me, this is the most interesting bit, right? Because you can hear something, then uh, other students pick up from, from that, and then they ask questions, or I can ask a question. So it develops. It takes um, a life on its own. And I think in organizations, we have to continue doing this, which means that what are the questions that um, our customers have about us, or our clients, if it's B2B, have about us? So how do we think that uh, our um, customers will consume news after five years? How do we think that our customers uh, will uh, uh, get entertainment in the, after five years? So there has to be this element. Can you do this every day? I'm sure not. But can you bring more of it? Definitely, yes. So creating a space for questions and making sure that not just on the manual, 
but living right through the centre of yes. the organisation, these this space that curiosity and questions are what we do around here. Yes, and and uh, and just to follow up on what you said, which I love, it's it's not only about questions; it's also about um, visiting places. So a lot of the companies that started in, in Silicon Valley, because they were designing products, they were visiting supermarkets, they were visiting toy stores. Who would imagine, for instance, that product designers were designing, you know, laptops or desktops or uh, gadgets for uh, large organizations that they will visit toy stores? But toy stores are full of a lot of interesting ideas, a lot of creativity. And if I'm very honest, cheap creativity, right? Because you have to figure out a solution that will work in a bracket that can be, for instance, uh, acquired by your market. And the market is generally kids, so you cannot ask the same amount of money that you could ask, for instance, for a smartphone that retails for 1,000 pounds or dollars or whatever. So all these kinds of tours, all these kinds of meetups, um, all these kinds of things which go beyond the organization show to your employees, to your teams, to everybody else, is that you are curious. And of course, there has to be a reciprocity. You cannot, curiosity is not only about taking, it's also about giving, right? So it's not only about asking, it's also about giving answers to some to other people's uh, questions. So there has to be this element of moving beyond the office again, traveling, visiting, meeting people who are not uh, very different from you, getting different angles, and at the same time, when other people need you to be there. Do you think it's about creating space for it in, in other ways then? So, you know, I can see here that someone listening to this thinking, right, I'm going to take my team to an art gallery or a toy store, or I'm going to take my team to, you know, we're going to go to somewhere weird and unusual as, a, as an act of provocation. Um, I used to work at an organisation that had a hack week, and the hack yes. week was really just an intention. Most of the output of the week wasn't intended to have any use or be used. and But because it, it had a, the origin story of Twitter came from a hack week. It was an organisation that was about to go bankrupt and the hack week saved it. And so as a result of that, it became part of the organisation's DNA. But is it about, to some extent, if you want to do some of this thing effectively, it's setting aside a week or an hour or and, and trying to sort of create a space where, the interruptions of the calendar can't intervene. Mm, there has to be. It has to be. I agree with you, and I agree with you in terms of the um, limitations that you just mentioned. It has to be part of the DNA of the company, rather than something that it's great to have because everybody else does it, or because it will make our um, people happier. Right? I think sometimes if you if it's um, orchestrated or if it's done in a very formalized, structured manner, it's not the same thing like something which is more impromptu. Okay, we're stuck with finding a solution, right? What's the best way to get unstuck? Let's you know, go somewhere else on the spot rather than organizing. And I will give you an example. So I'm doing executive education with a um, leadership team of, um, of a company well-known. I'm not going to mention the, the brand or the industry for obvious reasons. And then I ask the marketing um, officer about um, their target market. And then their response was that we get a fantastic report from a market research agency about who our customers, users are. And I said, okay, I understand, I hear you. I don't want to be disrespectful, but can you be more specific? And then they continued with that, for instance, answer. And I said, okay. So at that point, this is something that I didn't plan. I took a risk and I said, okay, let's stop what we're doing right now. So what I would like you to do is get a piece of paper, write five questions. If you were having, for instance, a customer in front of you, what would you ask them? And then take another piece of paper. If you could observe your customers, um, what would you like to see that they are doing? What would you like to observe? So I stopped. It wasn't rehearsed. It wasn't part of you know what I was doing. And then I said, okay, because they have um, premises establishments around um, central London, I said to them, okay, you have two to three hours. Go and talk to your uh, customers, observe your customers, and come back with uh, some insights. So they come back. I think I gave them two hours, they came back after three hours. And all of them, 100%, they were super energized. 
they were telling me how much they enjoyed the whole experience, which was a very simple thing, right? Talking to your customer or spending some time with them. And they came back with loads of pages with insights. Then I told them, okay, you have a lot of interesting insights because there is momentum. Let's try to put some structure on these insights. Let's try to see whether we can convert these insights into some uh, very rough ideas, you know, products, services, etc., etc. So they spent the whole afternoon looking, looking, uh, looking on the, focusing on this. To me, these things which come more organically may have more impact rather than this is the time where we have mm. to actually go and okay. we have to spend this and then we have to come back and then our life will be exactly the same. So you need these kinds of things that will disrupt the equilibrium that may have very interesting impact to people who are there. The other thing is that it has to be part of the culture, as I was saying, and you were saying. It has to be part of the DNA that at points, it's okay to do such a thing. At points, it's okay to be curious. At points, it's okay to assume things or most probably to challenge our assumptions, to make it worse. Um, it's okay, for instance, to observe. It's okay to come back. So to actually make all these things okay rather than nine to five, this is how it is, and it's already pre-planned and pre-packaged and uh, we have to deliver. It's clearly in that case there, though, they had, in your exercise, they'd set time aside to go and chat to customers. Yes. And what was what really struck them the moment they'd done it was that it created these penny drop moments. They, they'd, rather than imagining what their customers had done, they'd actually done it. But it was that specific thing of saying, I'm going to do something now that's out of the ordinary. The only thing I, I wonder is that if someone is responsible, listening to this, and is responsible for a team, presumably their, their team can have a team culture of being curious, yes. even if the company doesn't. Would you see that, that, you know, you can have a microculture that your team might be product development? And I agree it wouldn't necessarily be enhanced if the whole company didn't have it, but you could try and foster that inside your team, could you? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and it, it would be great to actually foster more of that. And as you can imagine, here we are running programs, we are working in teams, and sometimes we have some ideas, and then we're saying, okay, so... Now that we have developed this, the team that has developed this, we are quite intrigued to see what the market says. So a lot of times it's about developing something and then probing the market and getting feedback. So we're not very different from any other organization as far as this is concerned. But for other people who are not doing this, you know what may happen? They may start getting jealous because they may say, why does this team you know, create all these interesting ideas or potential products. They are curious and we are not. So, and you don't want this to happen. You don't want to create, for instance, animosity or, you know, jealousy among units, right? So that's why I'm always saying that it will be better if the top management team or the leadership was actually believing all those kind of things rather than um, one. But to answer your question is that it can start from a, from a team, from a unit, and then it can you know, spread uh, around the organization. Um, it's, it's not easy to be uh, curious because it's very uncertain, it's risky, and you may fail, which means that you may hit the wall. And a lot of the people whom I interviewed, when I'm saying a lot of, let me take this back, 100% have, have hit uh, a wall. They have hit a setback. And again, this is something that is not for everybody. Sometimes you have to know your people as a team leader, right? So who are the people who are going to get energized by hitting a wall? Who are the people who may get paralyzed by hitting a wall? But to me, again, there is something that it's nice for us to consider or think about or reflect on, which is I always learned when I failed because it made me pause, it made me reflect, it made me more curious. Leave me on the side. When I talked to the uh, people for the book, when I interviewed them, 100% told me the same thing. I learned more from failure rather than from success. Because failure makes you stop. Because it's a, it's a shock. Like somebody punches you in the face, right? So let's be clear about it. Failure is never, whatever people say, failure is emotionally draining. Failure <laughs> can make you cry. Failure can disappoint you. Whatever the literature you read or the articles you read, say failure is great. No, failure is never great. But it happens, so we have to accept that it happens. So when it happens, then how do we approach failure? To me, this is the interesting thing. And I asked them, so what did you approach? And they said to me, most of them, not 
I don't want to say 100%, but most of them told me, this is where I become more curious. This is where I have more questions. This is where I get more hypotheses. You know, this thing didn't work because of X, Y, and Z, or if I do this, this thing will work. So to me, this, this tells me that we shouldn't actually see failure as, it is a bad thing, but we shouldn't actually get paralyzed, we should get energized. You know, what are the things that I got wrong? What were my assumptions that may not be valid anymore? Let's update them. Which are potentially new customers that have not heard of us that maybe love our products or may love our products. So this makes you pause, take stock of who you are and move forward. As we're coming to the end, I just wanted to, to get a perspective looking forward, really. Um, how do you consider these things are going to change because you're, you're having people coming to you and, and uh, trying to sort of come up with entrepreneurial ideas. Do you think AI is going to enhance that going forward? Have you seen an increase in the appetite to develop these skills? What do you think looking forwards? Absolutely. I totally agree with you. The, the future is with AI, not without. And when I started thinking, for instance, about the book, what I realized is that we are very curious. We are asking a lot of questions. So if you look, for instance, at search patterns that we have throughout the years, so the questions that we ask is getting, you know, the, the, the number is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. But then what I noticed is that our lives are not getting better and better and better. So there is a bottleneck somewhere. So that's why I started this book, or researching this area, because I was thinking a lot of us are curious, but our curiosity doesn't translate into something, doesn't convert into a solution, doesn't convert into a product, doesn't convert into a service, doesn't convert into a movement, an idea, etc., etc. So I think by having all this kind of curiosity and channeling all this curiosity and using AI to give us some solutions or some some answers very quickly, we may see all these problems that we have being resolved quicker um, than if we didn't have, for instance, AI. So I think that if we put AI to work with us, we may get a lot of interesting answers or solutions quicker than we have originally anticipated. So I think that this is a great partner to have. To answer the second part of your question, we have to develop these skills. So we have to be curious about AI and what is the skill set that we would like to develop and who are the people who, who have to develop those skill sets and how we can move, for instance, our communities, our societies uh, better. And how to use this, I have to say this positively, right? Because every technology that has been, for instance, launched always has some positive things, always has some negative things. So we have to see how we can use it in terms of solving our biggest uh, problems. So universities... Uh, cities, communities, governments, uh, the planet has to actually um, become very interested how we can use this fantastic power that we have in our hands to solve the biggest problems that we currently have. It's sort of intriguing to see how I think a lot of organisations recognise that they've sort of become bureaucratic and, and curiosity seems to be a way or channeling it or trying to create it at the centre of your organisation seems to be an important response to that bureaucracy. These tools are going to be helpful, but I think you've got to address that fundamental cultural perspective to kick you off. It is very difficult to change, as you know, because you have been involved in Syria, and it's very difficult to change a culture, and especially a culture which is from a large organisation, because a lot of people who are in very important positions in the organization, they would like to keep things as they are. So somebody who is curious, again, I'm going back, they will come across as unruly, as misbehaving, as not good soldiers. And a lot of organizations, uh, let's be honest, want the soldiers, want people to do the job rather than a challenge. So to me though, this has an expiry date. Companies which will survive teams which will survive are the companies which are going to always have this questioning, inquisitiveness, mindset behind what they're doing. Because what we have seen in the last three or four years is that there is a lot of uh, dynamism in our planet. So we have to adjust with whatever else is happening in our planet. So to me, they shouldn't be looking differently people who come with questions. They should be rewarding. That's the other thing. A lot of companies don't reward people who are curious, don't reward people who are creative because they are upsetting the status quo, right? So 
they would like to own because they're taking a risk, because they're afraid that uh, reputation-wise they might have a problem. So to me, there has to be a reward about questioning. There also has to be a reward about answering, right? Not only questioning, but also answering. There has to be a reward in terms of being creative, being innovative. Because we live in a planet with a lot of problems and what we have to reward these people with or teams or organizations that come up with those solutions to those problems. We're out of time, but I'm so grateful for a, a wonderful conversation. Kostas, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Bruce. I appreciate it. Thank you to Professor Andriopoulos. I'm so grateful for the, the chat to have and, and to let it run long, actually, a conversation that happened in person. As I say, you're going to find so much stuff in the show notes. If you're interested in this, if you're interested in the applications of this, I've been dazzled. This um, One of the people I mentioned, Professor Ethan Mollick from Wharton Business School, he's done some incredible things. He, he asked Bing AI to come up with the names of a pasta restaurant. Then he said to to it, I'm going to give you a naming convention of how to come up with company names. I want you to give me better suggestions. I want you to check those suggestions for any copyright violations. And so it was creating pasta restaurant names for him that didn't violate, violate copyright. Man, it's incredible. We've got exciting times coming up and I hope you've enjoyed this as a, as a, a navigation guide. I've been Bruce Daisley. Thank you for listening. See you next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.